Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is a person that many call the father of British EQ, console designer John Oram. First of all, SoundCloud is about to embark on something that might revolutionize the way artists get paid online. They're about to do something known as artist-centric payments. And what that means is, instead of all the money from subscribers going into a big pool and then distributed out via market share, the user could assign the amount of money that they pay directly to the artist. So for instance, if you listen to your favorite artist, let's just say it's Beyonce, and she gets 90% of your listenings, then you can say, well, she should get 90% of the money that I just paid in. Artists have been trying to get this for a long time. Record labels are very hesitant in changing the balance here because they're making a lot of money. Now, that being said, the way it works now is all of the money that's paid via subscriptions go into a big pool, and then they're distributed out via a very complex formula that has to do with market share. So, to some degree, the more popular you are and the more you get played, the more you get paid. This would definitely change things, and we don't know how it would shake out. Would it be better for smaller artists or worse? One of the beauties of SoundCloud doing this is the fact that most of the songs that are on the platform are by indie artists. So it's not like there's a lot of major label artists that are on there releasing their songs at least outward to the public. So as a result, the licensing agreements don't really play into this like they do on some of the other platforms like Spotify and Apple Music. This is actually not released yet, So they haven't given us any details. There's just been very strong rumors. Looks like it's going to happen. I'll let you know when I find out more. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my music mixing primer and 101 mixing tricks programs that will help take your mixes to the next level. Go to bobbyosinskicourses.com to learn more. Now, one of the things I've been saying for a long time is immersive audio, regardless of how good it sounds and how cool it is, it's never going to take off until we have a technology revolution in speakers. We basically have the same wooden boxes with the same transducers for 100 years. Oh, they've gotten better, but they haven't really changed the technology. That being said, once we get speakers that are sort of built into our walls, then everything opens up and there are many more possibilities, especially for immersive audio. We may be closer to that than you'd think. Germany's Chemnitz University of Technology has come out with something that looks like this is the real deal. What it amounts to is wallpaper that are transducers. This came out of a 2015 project that they were doing called the T-Book. And it was a book where every single page, there's different audio program to go with the picture that was on the page. Now we're talking about thin paper pages that are actually giving us audio. And the same thing is happening now only with wallpaper. So what they're doing is they're taking two layers of paper, or you can use foil or anything else, and then they put a conductive organic polymer in between, which acts as the electrodes. 
it's completely sealed and protected from any damage, so it can be used outside, and it's really light. It's 90% paper. Not only that, they can get a lot of transducers. In a strip of paper about five foot long, there are 56 transducers that they can get into it. So there's a factory that's actually putting this stuff out on an experimental basis. So we're getting a little closer to this than you might think. Is this going to sound great? Probably not. The biggest problems with alternative transducers has always been how good do they sound? Usually there's a limited frequency response, which means that there's not a lot of low end. That being said, it's really exciting that something new like this is getting so close because if it does become commercial, it also means that there's also a possibility it's going to get better and better as time goes on. So immersive audio might be as close as the wallpaper in your house. My guest this week is John Orham, who started his career in the music business as the drummer for Marianne Faithful and as a fill-in for the Yardbirds. On the side, he began working at Vox during its heyday, contributing his expertise to the development of the wah-wah pedal, the fuzz box, the continental organ, and the super beetle amplifier. From there, he joined the legendary Trident Studios as a design consultant and later chief of design, creating many consoles, including the Fleximix, the TSM, and the Iconic Series 80. He then founded Reflex Music Technology, inventing electric acoustic preamps and pickups, supplying OEM products to Martin, Washburn, Charvel, Jackson, Loudon, and many more famous guitar names. Then he established Orem Pro Audio, where he continues to design and sell analog consoles and rack modules. During the interview, we spoke about growing up in the music scene in the UK, working at Vox, the real story behind Trident, the secret to the sound of his EQ, getting COVID twice, and much more. I spoke with John via Zoom from his boat sailing off the coast of England. Well, let's start from the beginning. I want to know how you got into electronics. Okay. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Um, I was a keen hobbyist with a garden shed and, a, and some ex-government test equipment. <laughs> and that was, that was when I was age 11. And I, I used to build um, kits. You could buy kits in those days of electronics and assemble them yourself. Famous American company, Heath Kit. And, uh, and we had a mob in England who used to do, um, I can't think what they were called now, RSC, I think it was, funny name. And they used to do a kit to build uh, amplification. And you could buy a, a tube, 30-watt uh, amp, and, and all the pieces would come. Um, well, I say that, in reality, when you got the kit, there was always something missing. So you couldn't quite finish it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that was the start. And... Uh, I was drumming as well at the time, a very keen drummer. And uh, when I was uh, 15, which was in 1964, I was drumming with a lady in England called Marianne Faithful. Oh, yeah. And I, I, I used to depth for various musos. On one particular night, due to an accident, a drummer couldn't turn up with the yard birds. And that was Keith Ralph on guitar and, and uh, on the vocals and a, and a spotty face kid called Eric Clapton on guitar. <laughs> 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 and he left he left the band because it was immoral earning all this money and and another spotty face kid called jeff beck took over so <laughs> they were great days um and i uh 
I got involved with um, electronics in a sense more sensible way. Um, I was only with Marianne for nine months touring, and we, <coughs> I, I decided, yeah, I need a proper job. And I lived in a town in England called Dartford in Kent, where we had a company called uh, Vox, and they were obviously the, the major players in those days. Um, I'd also had an association with two other young lads who were two years older than me. Um, uh, uh, they went to a, a, a grammar school. I went to what's called a secondary modern school. It wasn't quite up to their spec. And every lunchtime, we used to get together. The 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 headmaster bought some equipment, um, and that was fun because um, that was Keith Richard and Mick Jagger, who oh. lived in Dartford as well. Wow. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, standing joke, you know, I could have been their drummer, but I didn't like their music, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we all make mistakes. Um, and uh, it's not the only one I made. I made a few. But um, Vox said, okay, we, we need a student apprentice. And they sent me off to college to a full-time electronics course. And that turned into a, a, a certificated program in England called the um, Ordinary National Certificate. And that graduated to the Higher National Certificate. Uh, but more importantly, when I was there, they had a consultant who was a brilliant guy um, called Leslie Hills, and he um, suffered with agoraphobia. He couldn't go into crowds of people. He hadn't been out of his house for 30 years. And he met me and he said, you know, uh, I think you've got a lot of talent, but it's not been exploited. And I said, well, okay, it's nice to hear because, you know, you leave school and you haven't quite got the results you would have hoped maybe – and he said, don't blame yourself, blame the teachers, you know. You've got talent, you do stuff, um, uh, and I'm going to have to charge you one pound per hour to teach you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which was a great time. And on the very first day I went there I, I, to meet him, uh, he said, look, um, how's your calculus? And I said, well, uh, to be honest, I've never heard of it. <laughs> so <laughs> that was a new thing. And... Uh, yeah, he took me through matriculation, as they called it, and calculus, but it was good. And he, he also tutored um, uh, Sir Clive Sinclair now, the man who created the computer and the, and the silly car. But um, oh. you know, So it was a great start. So that was my opening, and I was working with Vox. Uh, the founder of Vox was Tom Jennings, and he, um, he had a lot of engineers uh, in the company at the time, say nine or ten. And none of them were uh, students of college. They were all guys that had been like radio and television engineers during the Second World War. And he had one particular guy there called Dick Denny, and he had created an amplifier called the AC-30, which we all know. Yeah. And, and uh, Tom realized that I was doing maths and stuff at college, learning how to calculate things and and, and he said, hey, I'm going to put you in with Dick Denny because Dick's brilliant. Um, he has brilliant ears and a lot of talent. He knows what he's doing, but we don't have anything that's written down. We don't have any proper circuits. Crazy, really. And um, it was good for me because, obviously, I worked with the Beatles. I had time with them. And, of course, the Stones I knew from school and eventually bumped into them. And it was a question of, okay, let's, let's tr all work. It was a team effort. I mean, you know, lots of – People have said, oh, didn't you design the Wawa? And the answer is, of course I didn't. You know, we had an association with with um, an American guy called Stan Cutler, who was a trumpet player, and he really was the guy with the idea, and the Wawa sound came from his 
trumpet playing with a mute over the horn, you know, <laughs> to create that what? You know, that was one of my questions for you, actually, and I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on Vox, although I find it very interesting, but the wah-wah, was that made originally for guitar? Yes. Okay. Yes, yes. And it was, Tom Jennings was a brilliant guy. He, he, um, he'd started off in 1950, 55, that era. Um, I actually own the number, serial number one, of the first AC-15 amplifier. I still own that. And and I, I, I found it. I mean, I didn't get it out of Vox. It had been sold and it had moved around the country. And I, I went to a um, what we call a jumble sale, like a boot sale in in England. And, and it was just standing there, filthy dirty, of course, and in a mess. And when I leaned over the back, it had a little plate on the back, it had serial number 0001. <laughs> And I thought, I've got to buy this, um, which I did. And I won't tell you what I paid. I'm embarrassed because it was cheap. <laughs> <laughs> but I, when I got it back, I cleaned it all up and put it through the mill, you know. So, yeah, great, great stuff. Um, no, the, the, Tom's had this uh, – he had a lot of corporate entity within him. He knew how to run a company, you know. And I learned a lot from him. Um, and he, he, would, he would hold a, like a little board meetings of the research and development team. Chief engineer would be there. The drawing office would be there. The mechanical guys would be there. And we would all sit around the table. And his, Tom's aim was to find a different sound for the guitar because it was, you know, a guitar is a guitar is a guitar. And so the Wawa um, was something I got involved with, Stan Cutler, because I was able to tabulate the information and write it down, draw the circuits and whatever. But I got actively involved in the circuitry as well. Um, but, you know, everybody there was a, a contributor. It was very good. I mean, it was a great atmosphere. And, and of course, after that was the distortion pedal or the fuzz box, as we called it. And yeah. we could never get enough gain. And so we used to build a unit and then enable it so you could plug two units together so you could <laughs> crunch it twice um and then we got obviously into phasing and all the various tremolo and the various vibrato techniques um but no it was a great time i mean so yeah vox for me was seven years of wonder wonderful and i ended up there having started as a student apprentice at 15 i ended up at 20 uh, in 1969 as the chief engineer of a new company that was formed after Vox because uh, there was a dispute over management structures with um, Tom and he split from the old company. It's a long story, so I won't go into it. It's quite interesting, actually. One day we'll get together and share it. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, you know, it's uh, he started a new company called JED, Jennings Electronic Developments, and then that became JEI, Jennings Electronic Industries. And, and I'd had a lot of work, too, right through the whole company. So I'd, I'd had quite a bit of experience with the Vox Continental Organ, which was a very popular device. And, you know, everything Tom did had a novelty. And I've tried to do that in all my products, to be honest. The main novelty with the, with the Continental was that it had uh, like a harpsichord colored keyboard so all the tones were black and the semitones were white yeah, yeah. um right a bright orange thing you must know it. and you know it was there was hundreds of those sold and the biggest problem for tom was the over successful i mean the company took off uh, when the beatles really took it big time um you know kids in america were 
buying Vox amplifiers, even if they didn't play instruments, just to put them in their bedrooms. And so we sold a lot of 15s and 30s and Super Beatles. I worked on that because that was one of the first you know, solid states. Okay, so I have a question about the Super Beetle because I owned an American version which was distinctly different from, which I found out later, distinctly different from the English version. So it, it was, a Super Beetle was really an AC-100, right? Uh, it was, but it was solid state, the true one. The true Super Beetle it was. didn't have tubes. Yeah, I mean, the big problem with, with transistors when they came out, the first transistor amp was the T60, which was used on bass, and, and it used the Mallard germanium power transistor which was either an oc29 or an oc35 i remember it well uh, and they were a lot of money i mean you, you'd have to buy those transistors they were like 18 pounds when the amplifier complete was only 60 you know and uh but the germanium was so easy to destroy and yeah. so they weren't they weren't stable and it wasn't until uh we got involved with the thomas organ company which was in america and we met guys out there, and they said, well, what about silicon? We'd never heard of that in England at all. And we said, well, what are they called? And they said, well, it's 40361, 40362s. And I said, I'm sorry, these numbers mean nothing. Let's try them. Well, of course, the great thing about a tube or a valve, as we called them at the time in England, the valve amp was good because you could, you know, get it into trouble and drive it into the wrong loads and things. And the, the bottles, as we called them, the tubes would glow red like like light bulbs but you could turn the thing off and they would cool down and you could turn it back on and you'd be back in business whereas with a transistor product <laughs> you overdrove it and you gave it some trouble and it just destroyed it so you had to start replacing so yeah but the, i mean the super beetle was a it started off with a with a transistor front end and a tube back end because that's the only way we could get power and then when the silicon transistor came, we said, no, no, we can do this. And obviously there was a there was an inherent loss in sound quality. It changed significantly, you know, yeah. that that the, the effect of a valve, uh, the harmonic distortion in a valve being, you know, uh, the exact opposite to the harmonic distortion in a transistor. So we, our ears weren't used to this. Yeah, yeah. I owned a Super Beetle, an, an American version. That, the head, I didn't, I didn't own the, the cabinet, but I owned the head. And I have to say, it was really interesting for its time, but it didn't last very long. It gave me lots of problems. Yeah, well, the problem again with that product was it was essentially engineered by a company of brilliant electronics engineers, but they didn't have a musician between them. Mm. And, you know, you'd say, they say, oh, this, you know, this tone control, what does it do? And you'd say, well, it boosts the top end, you know, the HF, and they went, Oh yeah, well, that's easy. We can do anything. Well, where do you want it? How do you want it? <laughs> and they would copy the drawings, but it never sounded the same. And of course, Dick Denny had to get involved, and with me, of course, because I was his, you know, apprentice in hand. But I'd graduated a lot through my qualifications, and and Dick said, "Yeah, let's let's help these guys out because they don't have a clue what they're doing." Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's jump up to Trident. I feel I have a connection there because I co-wrote a book with Ken Scott, his autobiography. As a result, I spoke to a lot of people, but you weren't one of them. That being said, I just feel like I had a connection there, you know, through Ken vicariously. Yeah, you, well, you probably did. But you see, you've got to understand, the, the Trident 
company started out with two brothers, Barry and Norman Sheffield, and they founded Trident Studios, which was a state-of-the-art recording studio within Europe. They were first to get a four-track machine. They were first to get an eight-track machine. They had a scully, which was dreadful thing. <laughs> and they were first in – so in multi-track, they were jumping forward. And they had an engineer who they'd employed to sort of maintain the systems, do a little bit of mixing, and make the tea, uh, a guy called Malcolm Toft. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they, uh, Barry and Norman, I think they had a quad eight was their console at the time. And they wanted a board that was more recording ready, you know, and that capable of doing the various things you want to do in a music room. You know, we wanted auxiliary sends, we wanted tone control that was a lot more flexible than just the top and bottom. And they, uh, <clears throat> the Sheffield said to Malcolm, uh, we, you're not making it in the engineering, audio engineering section. We've got, you know, Gus Dudgeon, Roy Thomas Baker, <laughs> Ken Scott. <laughs> These are classic names now that you could, you know, they're muse- museum pieces, but brilliant guys, obviously doing Robin Cable, doing some amazing stuff. And I followed uh, an inquiry that I'd heard, uh, I was running a consultancy business then, designing. I'd been out of Vox two years, and I was still consulting to Vox. I was consulting to Colesboro, another English amplifier company. Um, and I was, you know, I owned my own studio. I'd built my first studio when I was 15. I'd put it together with cash I'd made from Marion. And um, it was, uh, I, I built my own board. It was a tube console, uh, eight into one. <laughs> Wow! Yeah, <laughs> and and in those days, uh, the, the the stereo was still rare. You know, it wasn't everywhere. People wanted a great mono recording, and uh, it wasn't even called stereo then. It was called binaural sound. And you know, um, the guys said, "Well, you know, it's a great little studio." And I was recording lots of people who became famous. And they weren't at the time. I mean, it was, you know, we, I used to charge five pounds an hour and. And for £12.50, you could get a, a, an acetate disc as well thrown in. So it was a happening facility. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm not that I'm complaining. It were great days. And the when uh, uh, Sheffields, they said to Malcolm, look, you understand um, uh, the desk and the layout and what we want, and we'll do some drawings and show us what we could do. And you, um, uh, and Malcolm said, that's good, but I'm not an engineer. I, you know, I... I'm not. A, I'm an audio engineer, but I'm not an electronic engineer. And they got a guy in, and they patched him up uh, together. A guy called Barry Porter, mm-hmm. and between them, they created the Trident A range and the B range. Okay. Well, Barry was diffi- he's sadly no longer with us, but he was difficult to work with. He he had lots of ideas, and you, he would he would push the ideas forward and then you were three quarters of the way through the job and he changed his mind and had to start again and very expensive in a, in a commercial world, you know, and, and I had put out a uh, newsletter that went out to uh, audio professional audio companies uh, because I wanted to get into that market and I built my own desk, as I say, and I was a drummer. I played some keyboards. I, I understood music. I understood the maths by now. I was quite qualified to apply it. 
course, no computerization these days, so everything was done with a slide rule. And uh, when um, I wrote to three companies, I wrote to uh, Neve and Rupert Neve gave me an interview and I got on all right with him. That was fine. And then I met a guy called Clive Green who was running a company called Cadac and they were the sort of live sound company. They weren't really in studios. And then I got this interview at Trident and I went along to the company. They'd been running about two years, I suppose. It was, I think they started around 74, was it? No, 72. And I joined them in 74. That was it. And uh, I met Malcolm and I met this Barry Porter and he was a very weird cat. And he said, oh, I don't want you here. You know, what, 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 what can you do that I can't do? And very strange interview. And I said, oh, I could do things. And uh, the Sheffields uh, had heard of a product um, called the Orban, very close name to mine, mm-hmm. the Orban Parasound, which was a parametric equalizer that, Dear old George Massenberg had thrown together and how they got hold of it, I don't know. Anyway, I, I was given the brief of can you design us a parametric equalizer? Um, we've got to have one because we're British and we've got this, we've got a couple of consoles out there, but we want some rack and we want to be able to do it. Um, and we want it on the quick. So I said, okay, well, I can design that. And Norman Sheffield said to me, he said, well, how long do you think it will take? And I said, oh, I don't know, eight to ten weeks, you see. <laughs> and he sort of turned away <laughs> behind his hand. He said to his brother, Barry wants like two years to do it. Wow. So anyway, I got the job and I and I did it in eight weeks. They paid me for ten because it was good. It was the CB9066B, I remember the product, parametric equalizer. And... Um, I got on very, very well with Malcolm. We were we had a great association, and he would create systems. He would do front panel layouts, and I want a signal to go in here and come out there, and I wanted to have a distortion of less than 0.05%, and I want to do this, I want to do this, and I'd say, yeah, great. And they were very keen. They were getting on with me well. I was very excited at those days, of course, because I was a young man and getting on, you know. And uh, the crazy thing is that... Um, Barry Porter, he was totally unhappy that I'd managed to achieve the results in time. And he resigned. He walked away from the company. And the Sheffield said, well, he's our technical director. Would you like that job? And I said, no, because I could never have done that design in eight weeks if I'd been in-house. Yeah. You know, I'd get bogged down with all the day-to-day queries about we've got a console here and we've got an RF problem or it's buzzing or this is happening. <laughs> and uh, anyway, but, they said, okay, well, will you join us? And I said, no, I'll go project for project. And on project for project, I stayed there for 14 years. Wow. <laughs> and so my first console for them was the Trident FlexiMix. And that was an interesting little board. But it was the first board to be produced that had op amps because uh, Rupert had said op amps are not, not good enough. And, you know, I, so I'd made a choice between Clive Green, Rupert Neve, and Malcolm, and I chose Malcolm. And we got on really well. He was best man at my wedding many years later. I'm godfather to his kids. And sadly, at the very end of the day, if you like, 14, uh, it was 1988, and he he, uh, wanted to start a new company. He was removed from Trident uh, for various reasons. Uh, 
the the pub, public story is he was he sold the company, but he didn't. In fact, but anyway, it's another story, and I don't wish to go into that really. Mm. Um, he said to me, "Well, what are you going to do? You're going to stay Trident?" And I said, "No, no, no. I don't, I've had enough. I've done." I designed the after the Fleximix, I designed the TSM and then I designed the Series 80. And that, of course, became probably the world's biggest selling rock and roll board at that time. One of the best sounding still. Yeah, sure. It was a good board. Yeah. And I knew I was doing something right, but I wasn't sure what. Um, and I'll get to that. But um, it, as it happens, you know, I'd, I'd worked there, I worked closely. And I left there and Malcolm started a company called MTA and I designed the MTA 980 and the MTA 900. Uh, and and say, so I want to make it clear. I mean, all I've ever done is circuitry, you know, the layouts and the, you know, a lot of people have criticized the boards and said, oh, you know, why is the EQ at the top when we want it down at the bottom? And I said, I don't know. Talk to Malcolm. That's <laughs> his department. Uh, but we got on well. But uh, unfortunately, MTA, MTA didn't succeed uh, for – Again, financial reasons, usual usual old problem, not enough cash. You might want to know, I just worked on an MTA console not that long ago. Oh, really? Yes. Wow, and was that the 980 or the smaller 900? 980, yeah. 980, yeah, sure. Yeah, well, of course, you know, Malcolm chose the name. I chose the name Series 80 when it was being built. They couldn't think of a name, and I I was designing the Series 80 in the late 70s. And I said, we've got to call it Series 80 because that's the next you know, decade that we're coming into. When Malcolm started MTA, he chose 980 because he said, uh, this is the Series 80 for the 90s. Ah, <laughs> uh, I get it. <laughs> yeah, that was the buzz there. And, you know, all in all, I mean, come on, we've had, a, you know, I mean, he and I had a good relationship. We did well. I made lots of money. There's no doubt about that. I mean, I, I was lucky in a way. Um, I made more money than he did out of it because – I was on uh, contract to contract is was a good arrangement, and it what it meant was I um, I was able to renegotiate. So the, when I did the the um, when I did the parametric equalizer nine oh six six, I I um, I worked for cash, um, but I did have a fairly heavy tax bill that year, and it was important. Yeah. <laughs> and then when it comes to the flexi mix. Uh, they said, you want more cash? And I said, no, I don't want more cash. I don't <laughs> pay too much tax. <laughs> Why don't you buy me a nice car? So they bought me a brand new Lancia Fulvia Rally Sports, um, which was theirs. They leased it, and I put the petrol in it, but it was a, gra- a great fun car. And and when I come to the TSM, that was another project, so I got something else. And when it comes to the Series 80, I wanted to upgrade my studios that I had still. That I'd started when I was 15. And I said, I tell you what, uh, why don't I take a pair of Tannoys and a decent, uh, a decent uh, Trident uh, board? I'm not sure which will go for the Flexi Mix to start with, but of course I ended up with a Series 80, and it was nice. Um, and you know, it was a nice way of working. To um, um, I was still living with my parents at home, so I didn't really have a huge overhead in terms of uh, you yeah. know, other than eating and drinking and running the car. I've worked on Series 80s, I've worked on TSMs, and uh, A-Ranges. Yeah, which have you preferred? The A-Range has a heft that's pretty interesting, but the TSM, I think, would have been my favorite out of all of them. You see, that's, that's still my Rolls-Royce console of all time, but it was so expensive to make. 
And, you know, uh, we'd sold, uh, we sold about five into the U.S., so many people said just can't afford it i mean in those days it was about eighty thousand pounds and and um, and the the sales guys they said we need we need that sound but we want to spend 20 grand (laughs) can it be done you know so all the niceties of the tsm with the slide eq faders and they were tapped faders that had resistors halfway up and down so at third tappings you got a different law I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very into EQ, you know, and I got christened the father of British EQ, very corny title, but a lot of guys, a lot of American guys that knew me, they said, oh, yeah, you're the guy, you know, you, you've got a lot of Vox sounds and that. The great thing, Bobby, was when in the 80s I got my first computer and, you know, it was a, a super high-speed, top-of-the-range machine. I'd been lo- I've been playing around with, like, the toys, you know, the Acorns and the the Sinclairs and all this kind of stuff. But I got uh, this. It was made. It was a Tendon. It was the state of the art. It had a 20 megabyte hard drive and a, a one one megabyte of RAM, <laughs> which was unheard of. Yeah, yeah. Why do you need one meg? You know, Microsoft designed it to run at 650K. You don't need that. Yeah. <laughs> it was color, color screen. And, and all powerful. And at that time, I'd graduated my driving skills and I'd worked up to a, a Porsche. I was driving a, 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 a 944, which was a very nice Porsche, and it was beautiful condition. And I sold that car just to buy that computer. Mm. <laughs> the computer was 19,000 pounds. Yeah, you know this? And I, it got me into um, mathematics on computer and I had a simulator package that I that I was working on to help the company that had designed it. So I had access to that. And it had a facility on there, not only to simulate circuit design, but it enabled you to uh, discover an element that I'd never heard of before. We all know about frequency response and we know about phase response. We know about gain and we know about attenuation. But this had a parameter in there called group delay. And and it's the combination of capacitors and resistors in a circuit that uh, cause a, a delay in the low frequencies in a in a signal path. And as it goes up higher, it goes to zero. So you've got nothing at the top end in delay, but quite a bit at the bottom end. And, uh, you know, I ran simulations on all my existing and previous designs, and they all had the same kind of group delay, including the Vox AC30. Wow. So it's an interesting fact. And I've kept that secret forever. I mean, it's 57 years now I've been in uh, uh, musical electronics. And last month, I announced that I would release the secret because everybody says we love your sound <laughs> and this, and I've done it now and it's called group delay. I can send you a transcript of it if you'd like Yeah. yeah. Um, because I've got involved for the first time in my life. I'm jumping right forward now uh, to a plugin because I've never had plugins of Aurum. And, uh, and the reason is because they've never sounded right. And you see, I've got involved with another company, an Italian company, Acoustica, Mm -hmm. and they took my high-def equalizer, which is my flagship EQ. Um, Al Schmidt uses it on every session. I do do a lot of work with Al because he's a brilliant 
ears and taste and flavor you know everything about how i love it <laughs> yeah um i was on the phone to him at three o'clock this morning english time um because he's you know eight eight behind and um yeah, just talking to him, and I told him I'm talking to you today. So oh. he says hi. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so but anyway, th they've managed to capture my sound because they don't they don't create the their electronics with algorithms. They actually sample every position of every control, and they store that sample. So you're really getting a replica of the real thing. And they, I they came to me last year and said would you be interested in working with us? Cause we're getting a lot of good vibes about what you've done. And I said, look, I don't want to be offensive, but I've been with everybody. I've done electronic arts. I've done waves. I've done this, this, this. And I said, it just doesn't work. And I don't want to get into an argument with your designers. Um, your guys believe what they do is right. I'm sure. But uh, well, anyway, they did it and they got the sound and it's going like crazy. It's selling like mad. It's not only selling lots of plugins, but I've sold more high defs in hardware in the last 10 days than I've ever sold ever. Wow. So our production's hotting up. But the point I'm making is that I needed that electronics to be able to analyze it. And when I did, I realized what it is about me and how I design. And I still design solid state circuitry as if it was a tube. And it, it's very simple. It's all down to the size of the resistor and the size of the capacitor within any circuit, whether it's coupling or roll-off or what it's involved with, EQ, CR, tone circuit or whatever. And, of course, what's also weird, if you like, uh, I call it destiny, um, is that when I actually started running the Aurum company, building high defs, building consoles after I'd been at Trident, even though the Series 80 still had the same group delay and so did TSM. So it's inherent to Aurum, I'm afraid. Um, but what I discovered was that uh, in all those circuits, all those projects, uh, they were all conventional components. But when I got to Aurum, I decided I'm going to use surface mount technology. And a lot of people in the industry criticize me, as they do, of course. That's rubbish. It will never work, you know. And I said, well, hang on a minute. you got a mobile phone in your hand. How do you think that's built? <laughs> you <know? laughs> and, and the great thing about SM is that the you can't get easily – you can get them, but you can't get easily – large values of capacitor in an SM format yeah. because these things are tiny, 1206, 08, 05, that's millimeters, the, the dimensions. Yes, right. And, and you know, I, um, I realized that, okay, if I've got to use small, then the values must be small. And, and therefore, in a, in a circuit where I want the right uh, roll-off or whatever, I'm going to have to use big resistors. Well, the size of resistor wasn't a problem in ohms. You could get them up to mega ohms, no problem. So all my circuitry, when you actually take it apart and you look at it, has um, very low caps in value size and very large resistors, which is very similar to the way we would work with a tube amp, where we've got like one mega ohm resistor on a grid and we've got you know 0.1 microfarad capacitor for coupling. Yeah, No problem, you know. And the interesting thing, and that's what's in my article, and I'm not 
I'm not frightened to tell people now. All the engineers will be running around trying to change the circuits. Yeah. <laughs> I don't mind. Um, the great thing is um, that if you take a, a formula, for example, very simply, the frequency of a roll-off is one divided by two pi CR, right? And forget about two pi and the mass. The, the, the frequency is inversely proportional to the capacitor or the resistor. Now, you could have a 100 microfarad capacitor with a one-ohm resistor, silly example, but the, the, the roll-off would be the same because 100 times one is 100. But if you put it the other way around and you make the capacitor one and the resistor 100, it's still 100. But when you listen to those two setups, they sound totally different. And when you analyze them in group delay, you find that the high resistor, low capacitor has given you a, a, uh, a better group delay. And, and the great thing about group delay is that whatever you're putting through that channel strip, if it happens to be a single instrument or a single tone, not a single tone because that wouldn't work, but if it was a single instrument or a whole musical selection, with the group delay being at the low end, intermodulation distortion, which is the term we use for when two frequencies together, you know, have effect on each other, you might well find that um, because of that group delay, the low frequencies are delayed from the high frequencies. So when in a real-time composition, they're actually not able to intermodulate because they're not there at the same time. Mm. Now, <laughs> it sounds silly, but it's true. And you do get some intermod, but far less than you would have if they were both in the time zone. So that's the secret of the Orem sound. Yes. Now you know. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to send it. I'll send it to you in writing. Yeah, I'd like but, to see it. Um, yeah. No, no. I mean, come on. I mean, uh, I, when I look back at all my circuits that were good and the things that people liked, you know, I mean, that there, there is a, there is a, some people say uh, my stuff's musical. Some people hate me and they say, no, your sound's colored. I want to see a dead flat line. I want to see zero phase shift. And I say, okay, fine. Okay, you don't have to be insulting. You know, yeah. Some of them are. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and I say, this, this isn't me. This isn't how I've created my life. And um, I, I, I see, I've done more than consoles. There was a period when I owned a company called Reflex, which made guitar pickups. Yeah. And I was. Yeah, and I was building more guitar pickups in England for the entire guitar world. I had major clients, customers. You know, the only company I never supplied to was Fender because they just didn't want to pay real money. You know, but even what I was, but I, I did. I created a preamp for Washburn called the Equus Two, which was an acoustic pre, which used the cheapest possible piezo crystal to going under the bridge. And it, and yet it, most of those sound like a banjo, but when you pluck them, but this didn't. It sounded like an acoustic. And I, then Rudy Schlacker at Washburn, he gave me an order for a year for 500 pieces. And within two months, I had delivered over 3,000. And wow. it went, it went up to a half a million. And, and that had the same characteristics, surface mount technology. And this, so I did that. I did for the Martin. A guitar company, a very you know prestigious name. Yeah. Um, I did the MEQ nine thirty two for them, which was ten or thirty times the price for them of the Equus, but it fitted their 
skill, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I designed for Charville Jackson with Tommy Moore down there. So, uh, but all these circuits have all been a piece of me, and they're all a piece of, you know, where we are. And uh, when Trident, when I left Trident in 1988, um, it suddenly went into decline. Now, whether that had anything to do with me going or not, I don't know. But Malcolm had gone, I'd gone. And in uh, 93, uh, I think it was, or five, four or five, 95, I was doing trade shows as usual, AESs, NAMs, uh, music fairs all over Europe, um, principally in the States. Most of my work has been in the States that I've done. Most of my successful work, I think. Um, and I love America, and it's always been a great place to be. You know, it's yeah. a, um, I shouldn't say it, perhaps, but I've always said America is a wonderful playground. <laughs> and I, I don't mean it disrespectfully, but it's just you've got everything, you know. Yeah. Um, you you, you want a bigger burger, you, you just go next door and you've got one. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I understand completely. You live in Spain now, though, right? Well, no, I'm in England at the moment. I'm living on a yacht in in England, and I have a yacht. I, I've just had a very unpleasant experience in the last year. First of all, I, I opened the beautiful studios in Spain uh, called Villa Lobos, which is in Almeria, uh, with a guy, a Belgium guy, and I put 300,000 euros worth of equipment in there and a lot of technical design help to change the acoustics and make it. And it's one of the most beautiful studios you could have. And I, I got it done. It took me a year to rebuild. And I went out there. I'm still selling all my equipment, so that's okay. I'm still selling rack and consoles. And I got out there. And last uh, February, um, I was introduced to a video director, a Dutch guy who had done um, – Oh, God, he'd done 10 videos with Barry White. He'd done eight with Amy Winehouse. He was a quite a named guy. And in my travels, I had worked with uh, George Lucas and created some special consoles for Skywalker. And in conjunction with um, Christopher Boys, an American sound designer, uh, I worked with him on creating consoles specifically for, for film projects. And the first one he gave me, which was a challenge, was was Titanic, and we won two Oscars for sound for that. Yeah. And I worked closely with Chris, and I love working to specification. It's not that I don't know the spec for myself, but to me, that's a very limited way of designing. I love to work with other people and say, what is it you really want? Because I can do it. I, I can create the circuits, but you know the sounds. That's why I've, I mean, I did a beautiful a channel strip for Al Schmidt, you yeah, know, the yeah, GMF, yeah. which put a load of money um, to buy. I don't know what that came out in the States for 14,000 bucks a piece of single channel. Or something. But I love doing that. And, and see, I moved out into my house. I lived in a 13th century house in Kent in England. And I moved him in with his wife for seven days. She went off with my wife to Harrods and Selfridges and did all the shopping every <laughs> day. Uh, I did all the cooking, but I also did all the, uh, all the work with Al on creating that product. Yeah. And every every switch position is what Al wanted. You know, and I had a breadboard in my control room, like a big bird's nest with all these wires everywhere. <laughs> and I'd say, right, Al, what are we going to do about this? And he'd say, yeah, um, 
I don't want 300 degree uh, cycles. I want, you know, 295. <laughs> okay, we'll do it. Yeah, yeah, right, right. He can hear it. Yeah, I know, absolutely. Yeah. Sure, that's right. And so, anyway, we had a great time with all that. And my, um, because of my, uh, you know, moving uh, with the studio, I was ready to rock with this new ball. Al was going to fly out in May and open the studio. And suddenly, this guy, this video director, very nice guy, uh, had spent four days in the studio with me. And on the fifth day, he was taken into hospital with COVID. And, of course, they, the hospital called up and they said, this guy, he's got coronavirus. And uh, how close have you been? And I said, yeah, <laughs> very much. <laughs> yeah, wow. <laughs> We've had breakfast, lunch, dinner, studio sessions, late nights. <laughs> did you get ill from it? Yes, I did. And I, I, I was put into quarantine. I'm, I live on a boat in Spain as well. I love boats, you see. Yeah. Motor yachts. Big, the bigger, the better. And um, I'm a yacht master instructor examiner, so I've gotten a, a bent. I, gra- I qualified in that as well. Yeah, yeah. And um, I'm sorry, I don't like blowing my horn too loud, but these are facts. That impresses me. I love cruising. So, uh, you know, when I hear about boats or ships, I'm, I'm all ears. Well, there you go. No, brilliant. And uh, as I say, I'm sitting on a motor yacht now and I can't see much of it. Oh, uh, yeah. No, I could tell. Yeah. I could tell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I went down with it and in Spain, it was a 28-day uh, check out and I didn't move off the boat. The police come every day to inspect that you're still on board and they were much tougher in Spain than, than England or definitely tougher than America. And it, when you were in quarantine, you had to, you if you went out without a mask on, okay, and you were on the street, no excuses, 600 euros fine immediately. And if you got done twice, 1300 and they would drive you to an ATM and say, get the money and pay. If you didn't have the money, you went into jail that night at the local um, police station and until your family came and bailed you out. So, in other words, there was no messing around, no playing about. But they captured it and they solved their problem. I mean, they knocked it on the head quite quick. Yeah. And I, I was allowed out having had a test, a blood test, in fact. And in the blood test, they said, well, Mr. Orm, you, your blood's loaded with antibodies and we'd like some of it. So will you give us some of your blood? And I said, sure, no worries. And they said, well, that's the good news. The bad news is that in the last three to five days, you caught it again. Oh. And I would, that second time, Bobby, was nightmare. Really? I mean, yeah, oh, yeah, I ended up oxygen tent and all the, you know, really. And I thought I'd, I thought I'd bought it. And so – I'm only telling you this because I hadn't seen my wife for seven months. She was stuck in England, so we were video linking every day, morning and night. Uh, there were no flights, you see. They immediately put a, a ban on flights in and out. Uh, eventually, I got her to fly in after seven or well, nearly eight months, and um, we the weather out is gorgeous. I mean, and the food is amazing, but you all the bars were shut, all the restaurants were shut, so. The police would go and do my shopping once a week. I'd give them a shopping list, and they would go out and bring it all back and tell me how much, and I'd pay them, um, which was good. Yeah. And I wasn't – yeah, I mean, I, I was doing okay. I mean, I, I've never been a heavy drinker, but I stopped drinking three years ago. 
I, I used to enjoy it and it was fun. And then when I got to 68, I think it was, well, I'm 71 now, I'll be 72 in May. When I got to 68, I said, you know what? I think my brain is more happening when I'm not had any alcohol. And it wasn't because I was drunk or anything. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it wasn't out of order, but it does control your mental abilities, you know. And I found my brain coming alive, and was, so I stay off the booze. I don't need it. Yeah, yeah. Shame because I loved, I loved it, and I owned a restaurant for four years in between all this story. And you know, after because when I left Trident, I had a non-competition clause. You cannot build boards uh, for three years, and I was stopped. Same with Malcolm. Yeah, he could. Yeah, yeah. So we had this spell, you know. But anyway, um, shame about Malcolm because we did have a falling out, and he. He um, went off to China and built a little console and put the Trident logo on it. And I had to take him through the courts. He had a backer, uh, an American, uh, who you probably know well, but I, I don't have to mention his yes, name. Yes, yes, right. You don't have All to. Right? Okay. And he he said, no, 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 we're going to, we're, we're, we're having it. It's ours. Malcolm's Trident. You're nothing. And I said, oh, that's very nice, very polite. Um, <laughs> he said, yeah, well, you don't understand, but Malcolm mixed Hey Jude. And I said, I think Ken Scott would have something to say about that. <laughs> and of course, um, I don't know who put it up, but somebody posted online the, the original tape box where the spool of tape was in for Hey Jude, you know, and on it it said, you know, engineer <laughs> Ken Scott. <laughs> I didn't see Malcolm on there. Anyway, uh, we, we can't get on with everybody. And it's a shame because Malcolm got very bitter. He's had four bankruptcies. He's had all kinds of problems. But the, the real important thing is that, you know, we've been good friends during a time when when there was something to do. There was a world to change. And I, 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 got, I got more and more involved when I was at Trident. I'm dancing back again now. But I, 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 I followed up a government tender, as it's called. It's a brief... Uh, which they send out from the Department of in Trade and Industry saying, can you satisfy this requirement? And the requirement was to build a console for Swedish local radio, uh, which had the brand LRAB. And they're coming up now, and you see them often on on the on the uh, Trident groups that are on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. People are saying, well, I managed to get one. Ah. <clears throat> and S SSL were in on that spec, so were Neve. I was the guy that was able to satisfy the brief, and I got an order out of uh, LRAB for um, 22 consoles in one go. Wow. And so it was a nice order. And I took that back to Malcolm, and I said, there you go. You didn't want me to do this kind of work. And he said, no, nah, it's too technical. I don't want to know about it. And I said, well, we've done it. <laughs> John, we can go on and on, and maybe we'll have to have part two of this. One last question for you. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe you learned along the way or maybe someone imparted to you? Mm. Well, let me tell you what the problem has always been for me. It's always been lack of capital, working capital. And I tried in the early days to own our own factory and to build, and I ended up walking away from that, uh, leaving the company to the management saying, you guys can run this. You don't need me. I'll bring the orders, what we call an MBO, a management buyout. And, but even that, 
what I've learned and what I do now and is the way is use other people because I subcontract everything now. So I create, and the beauty of that is I can literally run a company out of a laptop. In fact, to be honest, this smartphone I'm on right now is only a Samsung 10, but I virtually run the business on that because it does everything you want to do. You create invoices, stock control. I can do design. Them. <laughs> and and so I would say that the my lesson, I mean, my father worked for himself, but he was from a different era. And, and you know, I mean, it's all about hard work and it's all about fitting into the market you want to be in. And, you know, I... I used to run my personal desk, and I still do, really, I suppose. But when I was in an office, a company, I would I would be in that office at 10 in the morning, and I'd still be there at 2 a.m. the following day. And, guys, the, that's how I got the Lucas contract with that because uh, Christopher Boys rang my office at 1 a.m. English time w with a query about he couldn't record the sound for – titanic because he's got this huge explosion when the ship sinks and his digital equipment is cracking up with the headroom problem and he came on the phone you see and and i automatically picked it up or i professional and it went quiet and he went i want to leave a message for mr john oram and i said you're talking to him and he went what i said you're talking to him <laughs> and i think that's been a, one of the keys to success because Whereas SSL, Neve, and all the others were going home at five o'clock at night, I was still there, and and I work American hours because I'm happy to. I'm a musician, so I'm a bit of a night owl, and I think that the uh, convenience. I mean, I still I still answer. I mean, I answer the phone all the time now because I don't have any staff, so you know I answer the phone and uh, and I'm pleased to do it. And guys say. Uh, uh, who am I talking with? You go, well, it's John Oram. He, John Oram? And I say, yeah, don't say it like that. <laughs> and America, particularly American guys, they say, um, why are you doing that? And I said, listen, in your language, you put gas in my tank. <laughs> <laughs> you can find out more about John at john-oram.com. That's John, J-O-H-N-Oram, O-A-R-M, john-oram.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, You'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.